One day, a fisherman was lying on a beautiful beach with his fishing bowl propped up in the sand and his solitary line cast out into the sparkling blue surf. He was enjoying the warmth of the afternoon sun and the prospect of catching a fish. About that time, a businessman came walking down the beach trying to relieve some of the stress of his workday. He noticed the fisherman sitting on the beach and decided to find out why this fisherman was fishing instead of working harder to make a living for himself and his family. You aren't going to catch many fish that way, said the businessman. You should be working rather than lying on the beach. The fisherman looked up at the businessman, smiled, and replied, and what will my reward be? Well, you can get bigger nets and catch more fish, was the businessman's answer. You will make money and you'll be able to buy a boat, which will then result in larger catches of fish. And then what will my reward be, asked the fisherman again. The businessman was beginning to get a little irritated with the fisherman's questions. You can buy a bigger boat and hire some people to work for you, he said. Don't you understand that you can become so rich that you will never have to work for your living again? You can spend all the rest of your days sitting on this beach looking at the sunset. You won't have a care in the world. The fisherman, still smiling, looked up and said, and what do you think I'm doing right now? As we wrap up this final segment in our happiness series, we're going to share with you some of the unlikely finds that we encountered along the way. A set of happiness hacks, if you will, to hopefully help you see how we do things every day that can increase our happiness. Let's think significantly. Hello everyone, my name is Pete and joining me once again is my herald of happiness, my very dear friend, Melissa. Hello everyone. Pete, I do not know how you come up with these things, but it's clear that you like alliteration. <laughs> I do. I do. I can't yes. help it. It's 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 the comic book kid in me, you know? The... Right? Well, as soon as you said herald of happiness, I thought of Harold and the Purple Crayon. So that makes oh, sense. Oh, okay. Right? That's, yeah, sure. But a different kind of herald. Uh-huh. Right. That's a, yeah, I think that's Harold, isn't it? Like a name. I do believe. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Slightly yes. different. Slight, just a titch. Yes. <laughs> as I like to say, yes. So uh, I'm so glad that we're doing this episode because as you and I spoke before we decided that we needed a fifth episode, we had so much stuff that we came up with during our month-long discovery phase about this topic that all these little things that didn't quite nest so tidily into like that week's theme, but like we just had to relay to our listenership. It definitely was that. Plus it was the the realization that uh, oh, May has five weeks now. Right. Oh yes, that too. Yes. They're gonna oh they're gonna expect five weeks of content. Right. Five Tuesdays. Five Tuesdays. No. No. Yeah. So what I picked up over the course of this month is that happiness abounds. Uh it really is just there for the asking, kind of like pennies on the ground. That rhymes. I didn't mean that. Sorry. Wow. You do alliteration, I rhyme. Yeah, so you've been doing that lately. That's awesome. Yeah, we got to get a third person who just speaks in haiku. <laughs> yeah. That'd be perfect. You know, and I thought to myself, well, uh, you know, I wonder if it's just that we've gotten so used to like looking at things with a jaded lens that we don't realize that happiness is out there for the asking. Yeah. I, you know what? I'm, unfortunately, I'm going to agree with you there. I think these last few years have definitely cast a shadow on the way many of us have been viewing the world. 
So I had a friend, not you, my other friend, oh share a quote with me. I, I got feel two. betrayed. You've got more than one friend. Well, we oh, might no. ask if she wants to be a haiku person. So oh, well, yeah, it's all good. So <laughs> she shared a quote with me the other day and it said, the world doesn't need more darkness. We've all become highly skilled at keeping fear alive. It's time to become masterful at fueling the light. That's, that's really nice. And, and cultivating happiness is one way that we can fuel that light. Yes. Seeking it out, generating it. It's like all kerosene, baby. Yeah. <laughs> well, kerosene. Oh, well, this is really going to be an explosive episode then. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to hit on a ton of different ideas in our lives where happiness might already reside. And we've been kicking off each episode so far this month with a definition. And since we are, I think it's my turn, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, so I was prepared. Um, but I thought since we are dedicating this episode to how each of us can find you know, can generate, can participate in happiness. I thought that I would just go up to that 10,000 foot view elevation, you know, where you aviators are used to being <laughs> and just borrow from Tal Ben-Shahar. He's a Harvard University professor. He says that most people's definition of happiness is too narrow. Tal Ben-Shahar, he's the, he's the guy that taught positive psychology, right? The, the, yeah, that was one of the most popular classes in the history of the school. Yes, he did indeed. And I think like one of their other most popular classes in the history of the school was another one he taught. I think it was like psychology of leadership or something. That's, yeah, that, that's not a bad record to, to have, you know, no, even no. just one of the top most popular classes at Harvard, let alone two. Exactly. So in other words, he can be someone we should probably listen to, I guess. Yeah, like, I would say so. Yeah. With some street cred. <laughs> so he said that when we define happiness too narrowly, it doesn't allow for the place of painful emotions in one's life. It doesn't mm. allow for the sense of meaning and purpose in one's life. It doesn't allow for considering the relationship between the mind and the body. And it certainly doesn't allow for a sense of curiosity or questioning. I was just smitten. I just love this. <laughs> no, that's, that's a great summation by, you know, of course it's going to be great coming from him, but but it really like it really encapsulates a lot of what we've been talking about as far as emo diversity and expressing the full range of human emotion. So right. that's that's really insightful, his little quote there. And, I, and and he's known specifically for divining happiness as the experience of whole person well-being, or or better yet, the experience of whole being, mm -hmm. which includes both internal and external well-being. Yes, absolutely. And he says when it comes to the individual. We don't need research. We need bum bum me search, but <laughs> it's great, right? I mean, I I love what he's saying. Right? No, he's absolutely right. So so let's see how our research can be turned into me search. You want to go first? Yes, I do. I do. All right. I'm a little hesitant to bring this one up, but I have uh -oh. so much information on it. I just, I almost try to talk myself out of bringing this up, but I can't, I got too much and I'm busting out at the seams about it. So ready? This will come as no surprise to you, Pete. Okay. Turns out that, yeah, work can make us happy. It's true. Yes. <laughs> I feel like there's probably some listeners that have been riding with us on a lot of stuff that we've said <laughs> that are like, yeah, maybe, you know, I could get behind that. Sure. I don't necessarily agree, but but yeah, okay, I can see where you're coming from. And they're all like, no. Click. No. Yeah, no. <laughs> work happy, no. Unfollow. Yeah. Yep. But I know that you're right. Work is consistently and positively related to our well-being and constitutes a large part of our identity. And for those of you who doubt that your work is your identity, I offer you a challenge. Ask yourself, who am I? 
and see how quickly you get to describing yourself in terms of what it is that you do for a living. Right. Yeah. Our jobs can provide us with a sense of competence, which in turn contributes to this well-being. And research has demonstrated that work not only leads to validation, but it also confirms our identities as individuals who are capable of shaping our own environments. Yeah, that's the whole IKEA effect, which is defined as the higher value consumers place on self-created products rather than for identical products made by others. The idea is that creating products fulfills consumers' psychological need to signal competence to themselves and to others. Mm-hmm. So not only does that bookcase that you spend hours putting together become your favorite piece of furniture, but you're willing to pay more to do the assembly. I never really thought about that. But to your point, yes, <laughs> we do know that there are a host of experiments that demonstrate that we derive pleasure out of work. I'm not just making this up, I swear to you. I believe you. Uh, you know, animals do as well. There are experiments that show that animals will work for earned food mm-hmm. by pushing a lever or hitting a button or whatever the, you know, however the, the experiment's set up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they'll do that even though identical free food can easily be obtained from a nearby dish. But you know what you're talking about, about the animals specifically? This is, has a term. It is called contra freeloading. Oh, that's an interesting name. That sounds, it sounds remarkably like what I suspect it means. Contra, like against freeloading. Yeah. I'm against yeah. freeloading. Yes. Yeah, that's awesome. Animals do this like intuitively. They just do. They're going to work for their food rather than be like, give me some of the free bowl. Yeah. You know, and speaking of work, I want to bring up a point about free time here, because lots of people think that having time off is really integral to happiness. And it is, but only to a degree. Okay. Well, now I'm curious because this is funny. I just got off a call where people are like, and you know what I'm going to do this weekend? Because it's a, we're recording on a holiday weekend and, uh, you know, everyone has plans and usually most of the plans I hear are like doing nothing. And I'm like, that's how bad our week was. Mm -hmm. But I, in my head, because I've done all this research, I'm like, "Mm, I don't know. (laughs) You guys guys are not setting yourselves up for a good weekend. That's right. So is that what you have? Is your, is your research that you've done corroborate that sitting on the beach effortlessly day in, day out is not the key to long-term happiness? That's actually correct. Yes. Research has pretty much landed on two to five hours of free time. Mm-hmm. So your subjective well-being goes up to, to about that point, to about two hours. And then once you get to the five-hour mark, it starts to drop off. So you're, you're aiming for two to five hours of doing nothing. That's your sweet spot. That's what the research tells us. Yeah, I can corroborate that from you know my own life. I would say anytime I have an unscheduled free day, it's not going to end up being among my uh, best experiences. Right. And yet we think it is, you know, I think we have this whole like work time off thing all wrong here in the States. I really do. Oh, I I couldn't agree more, but what's your particular take on that? Well, I feel like we work ourselves to this crisps just to afford to take this remote slated vacation where we do nothing for a week. And like, neither of those is contributing to our happiness. I think you're onto something here. It absolutely does matter how we spend our time. Research says that on the whole, an abundance of discretionary time spent on solo or non-productive activities produces a negative effect on subjective well-being. While we can avoid these negative effects if we instead spend our discretionary time on activities that are social or productive. So that brings me to something that I just happened to trip across this week when I was looking for something completely unrelated online. 
it was like the universe had been like, you must know this information. <laughs> so yes, it just came across my bow. There is something called the experiential CV. So, you know, like scholars, academics, right? They write uh-huh. up their curriculum vitae, their sure. CV in, in lieu of a resume usually. Right. So this is like what, what normal people are doing, like just on the, well, I wouldn't call it normal because <laughs> an experiential CV is where people fill their free time with these very unusual or like novel experiences. And it can be like a novel experience in terms of consumption, mm-hmm. or it can be a novel sort of unique leisure activity or vacation that is just predestined to be less than pleasurable. Oh, okay. Like eating bacon ice cream, for example. Which or, you loved, by the way. I did. Yeah. Okay. No, that, was, that was delicious. <laughs> but I'm all about that experiential consumption. That's, I feel like I might be a little bit of a slave to trying those different things. Oh, uh, interesting. Uh, if I'm presented with a bunch of options and there's one that I've never had before, that's probably the one I'm going to go with. Mm-hmm. Um, so this absolutely resonates with me. The, the other thing I can think of when you talk about experiences, I saw recently that there are places you can stay. There's a hotel that's built of ice. There's okay. uh, one that's built of garbage that was collected off of a beach. Uh, there's one that's built from like salt. So the, and those are all real things. Those are all places that somebody could stay and expand their CV in that arena. Right. Yeah. I never heard of a garbage hotel and I don't think I need to. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was thinking of an endurance desert race on your, on your time, quote unquote off, you know, like I do have friends that would maybe do like an Ironman just, you know, just cause. Yeah. Yes, you do. And and that's some, some eudaimonic happiness there. That's definitely going for meaning over pleasure. True. It is different from the hedonic happiness that we tend to associate with, with the leisure, with the laying around with the the cocktails being fanned. And I have to wonder if that isn't just an extension of our, our continual striving to use our time productively or our propensity to want to check things off of a to-do list. Yeah, no, I don't think you're too far off the mark. They're, they're, they did a series of, of both lab and field studies mm. that shows the consumption of these, they're framing them as collectible experiences, Okay, is driven and intensified, interestingly, by a productivity orientation, like we have to do, like do all the things. Right. So collectible experiences are these novel experiences. That's how they were defining them. Yeah, I think. Uh Yeah. Mm -hmm. So like bucket list stuff. That makes total sense to me. Yeah. And to kind of wrap up this bit about work, we could say that that in regard to happiness, work can reinforce that we are competent individuals, that we in many instances are making the world a better place to live, Mm -hmm. and that we are part of a system bigger than ourselves. And that's not even touching on the social benefits that come from developing friendships with those you work with. And to your point, you are right. In my little notes here, I also have this thing that I was not going to bring up because I just (laughs) figure it's what you bring up all the time. But research does show us that work friendships increase employee engagement, which, you know, being from an HR background, I was like, really? If you have a work friendship, this increases like employee engagement and not engagement with each other, but in a productivity sense, like it's better for business. Happy workers are good workers. Yes. It increases their happiness and the business is getting something out of it. And this is just a little aside, just something that I was thinking about through this week as I was going over which notes I was going to talk about when we recorded. But I thought to myself about when we all moved to remote work, like during the pandemic, when we all got kind of shuttered, 
I think that it inadvertently kind of lowered the true compensation of work for millions. And I think it has a lot to do with the great resignation that we're experiencing now. And that we talked about in season one, like people have choices, you know? Right. Yeah. In our YOLO episode. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, I agree with you. I think that the vast majority of people that went remote lost that social aspect that we were just hitting on mm-hmm. that face-to-face, that interaction with people. Even if you live with someone else, that diversity of interaction is important. And a great way to reclaim that true compensation, as you put it, is to take the opportunity to bond with your coworkers as most of us move back to working on site again, mm-hmm. right? As you just said, doing so won't just increase your happiness, but it makes everyone more productive with the hours spent at work and no employer is going to ever complain about that. Right. Like we all want the widgets to be made. That's yes. right. We Unless you're making the, the donuts and right. then you don't really, not really interested in the widgets. But just to go full circle here, we just have to temper that with that just enough free time so that our time off doesn't threaten our sense of productivity and purpose. You know, like we want to be productive. We just got to, we got to have a balance. And it's not, I'm going to say again, not in the way that we currently define work-life balance in the United States. I'm telling you, that is not correct. <laughs> yeah. I think you're hitting on an important point here without maybe even realizing it. We humans like having free time. We dare I say, need to have our free time. But we typically aren't good managers of that time. Mm -hmm. So that's why we can't have too much of it. It's like the three bears. You want the situation that is just right. Right. Not too cold, not too hot. Right. Right. And we got to be striving for that on the daily. So it's not baby bear like on the aggregate. Right. It's baby bear on the daily. Right. Yes. That's the goal on the daily. Have a little of this and a little of that. Right. You can't work yourself to the bone and then take all that free time that would have made you happier during the last six months. And like you said, spend two weeks doing nothing. That is not the way to make it work. Right. According to research. Right. That's right. So this leads us nicely into the point that I wanted to bring up about happiness. And that is about, you must know thyself. I would totally agree with that. And even though it sounds like we're saying something riveting about this time off, I think that people have a good idea that they're not the happiest when they sit catatonic in front of a TV for seven hours. I think people already know that about themselves, Mm -hmm. but well, I have some thoughts on this as I do on everything. I I think that- (laughs) No, come on. Come on. You have a thought? On an opinion and it's weird. I don't even know what to do with myself. Now you're saying you have a thought on something. But I think that people really have a good assessment of themselves. But I think that sometimes people either are afraid to ask for it um, because it might not be, you know, granted, or they simply do not know the steps on how to get from point A to point B. They know they want to get to point B, but it's just the plan on how to get there. But people do know themselves. I do believe that. Well, it's helpful if they do, because here's how knowing yourself leads to happiness. I'm going to do a reach back into some info that we shared earlier this month and even something that we alluded to earlier in this discussion, and that is eudaimonic versus hedonic happiness. Mm -hmm. As we've mentioned, these are two vastly different approaches. Right. And just as a reminder, because I know Pete and I are swimming in this, but for our (laughs) listenership, if you, if you haven't listened all month, uh, go back and listen. That's step one. (laughs) Yes. Pete's like, go back. Yes. Go ahead. Now proceed. The, the hedonic approach focuses on terms of pleasure attainment and pain avoidance with a goal of basically at the end of the day, having more positive emotions and negative emotions. You're really just looking for 
the pressing of the lever and the reward of the food. More pleasure, more pleasure, more pleasure. Right, the Pavlovian. Yes. And the eudaimonic approach, on the other hand, is about leading a worthwhile life in the pursuit of human excellence. A eudaimonic life is characterized by authenticity and purposefulness and strives for self-actualization. And the reason I bring this up is because knowing which of these fuels us is critical to maintaining our happiness. So you're saying that we have a preference. We were kind of have a preference for one of these over the other. I mean, humans are creatures of habit. So Mm -hmm. I think that we find a thing that we're good at doing and comfortable doing, and we just keep doing that without really exploring different ways to try things. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's super important for us to get an accurate and honest assessment of ourselves. And a great way to do that is by asking ourselves a very simple question. When my mood is low, do I naturally look to increase my level of pleasure and enjoyment? Or do I focus on meaning and purpose in my life? Mm, Doing a little pulse check. Yeah. I I think this is great advice because, you know, you can't make progress forward in life if you don't know where you're situated right now. So just like you're saying, we're creatures of habit, but is that really what we want to be doing? But you got to get the pulse check. You got to be like, here's where I'm at. Point on the map. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I can say from personal experience that I think it, it changes over time. I think at some points in your life, you might be more focused on attaining pleasure as a means to happiness. And then other times you might be more into service and meaning and, and worthwhile uh, activities to increase your happiness. So it's, it's not, this isn't a one-time thing. This is a, you know, check in with yourself fairly regularly to see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and I know they have done studies on this. As we get older, we tend to do things that are more focused on a life well lived, like meaning and things like that. So that's why you see people like suddenly having libraries in their names at the very end of their life. They're probably also like, I don't need $4 million to play Mahjong the rest of my days, (laughs) right? Like I got enough to live on comfortably. Whatever will I do with this money? I'm not giving it to my kids who are on the hedonic side of the spectrum at the moment, right? Right. They're going to barrel through that. And once you've situated yourself on that spectrum, once you figure out where you fall, you can formulate a strategy to intentionally strengthen the discipline you're missing, you know, assuming that you're not square in the middle. The key is not to suppress what you have, but to bolster what you lack. Are you making the point that you need both? Is that the argument here? I'm a big believer in personally in too much of anything is going to be bad. Mm -hmm. So if I'm a eudaimonic person and I get my happiness from serving others and doing worthwhile things. Mm -hmm. That's not energy wise and focus wise. That's not a whole lot different from work. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to have uh, deleterious effects on my happiness over time. If I'm not mixing in some of that hedonic leisure activity. Oh, that's interesting. Right. You might start to like resent it. Right. And definitely the same on the other side. If I'm a hedonic type Mm -hmm. and that's all I'm doing is seeking pleasure, well, you might pretty quickly decide that you're becoming shallow and and not really fulfilling your life's purpose. And that's where you can plus up again, not reduce the amount of pleasure you're seeking, but plus up the amount of meaningful activities that you're mixing in with that. Sure. You could train for a marathon for charity with friends. Yes. Well, in addition to that, there are also things that you can do daily so that you're making incremental changes, which we know we love on this podcast. Mm -hmm. 
like reflecting on your day and asking yourself a series of harmonizing questions like, did this event bring me enjoyment? Did it also bring me meaning? Did this make me feel afraid? Did I learn something from this fear that will lead to less fear in the future? Did this serve my interests? Did it serve the interests of others? And so on. Oh, I, I see what you're doing there. I had to like sort of make sense of it. You're like, bring me enjoyment, bring me meaning. Like this and that. It's a yin yang. A little of this on this side, a little of that. Right. Yeah, a little you're column looking, A, a little column B, sure. There you go. You're looking for like yes, yes combinations. Right, exactly. So you're you're just really trying to ensure that you're actively flexing both sets of muscles, hedonic and eudaimonic, I'm guessing. That's correct. We want to ensure that the world that we are crafting has deep wells of family, friendship, and work. Mm-hmm. We want to set goals and make plans and work hard to achieve them. But we also want to make sure that we take time to be present, especially when we're celebrating those incremental wins. Mm-hmm. I'm smirking over here because it's so interesting that you brought this up because just last week, I came across something called psychological richness. And this is actually supposed to be the third and until now rarely considered dimension of well-being. Oh, wow. Uh, and, And what exactly constitutes psychological richness? I'm so glad you asked. So a psychologically rich life is one that is characterized by a variety of interesting and perspective changing experiences. So we're adding this to the mix, right? You remember we have, we've just been talking about pleasure and meaning, and now you have this third component and the way they realize that there might be this sort of like missing element, right? This brand new thing that no one knew about before mm-hmm. is they hold 500 students and they ask them to report the extent to which a series of characteristics describe their lives. Right. And you had the folks who are like enjoyable. Okay. Well, that's hedonic. Right. Fulfilling. Okay eudaimonic Mm -hmm. then they had this other group and in there the words that people were picking to characterize their lives included this is fascinating to me interesting dynamic uneventful monotonous okay and from this they realized there's this third third wheel if you will so you're saying that the the results suggest that pleasure meaning and this richness are three distinct factors that contribute to our happiness. Yes. And I said third wheel, but actually if you have a third wheel, it's a thing that you don't need a third wheel. This is like the third leg of a stool. You absolutely need it. So it's not a third wheel with a third leg of the stool. Yes. Sure. It kind of reminds me about how you remember how they most recently like added umami to the tastes that we thought we were confined to. Yes. Before before we thought it was like sweet, sour. And then they're like, now I bring you umami. Umami. Yeah. Yes. which I personally think is one of the most fun words to say. And, and I think it's the best thing. Umami. Way, right? Who doesn't like gravy? Hello, right? Yeah, no, yeah. right. That's savory. Oh, you know, you know, I'm a savory person. I love that. Yes. And Umami. now we have psychological richness. Yes. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> That's yes. right. And um, so I just, because I'm a research geek, I got to tell you. So like, of course, I went down the rabbit hole on this. So, so these researchers, of course, they start off with the 500 students and then like, let me see if I can kind of like corroborate this. So then they ended up going to obituaries in newspapers, both in the States and in Singapore. And they did a content analysis and they found that obituaries too lined up into these three very distinct dimensions. They have pleasurable, meaningful, psychologically rich. So can you give me some real world examples of what constitutes this richness? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my mind around this concept. 
Sure. Yeah. Um, so psychological richness is associated with unexpectedness, novelty, complexity, perspective change, that, all the things that kind of cause you to sort of like shake the sheets, if you will. Which makes the bit that we just said about eating weird foods and staying in a nice hotel make more sense too, right? That yeah. those, those unique experiences are feeding not just the productivity orientation that we talked about, and, and but they're making our lives more psychologically rich. Mm-hmm. And, and you're saying that this is like a, like a third muscle that we can flex, just like the hedonic and the eudaimonic pursuits. Absolutely. I mean, I think it only stands to reason that certain types of experiences might enhance it. Like they found that students who studied abroad developed significantly higher psychological richness scores than those who had stayed on their home campus. Oh, that, that makes a ton of sense, actually. And, I, and I'd imagine that someone who's leading a, a psychologically rich life, having those, those novel experiences, I, I'm betting that it might help people deal with change better. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Because that's kind of like taking on a, a novel approach to something. Sure. Uh, it, it might even help people cope with, with difficulties in their life, even, even tragedy, if they can find value in the perspective change that that difficulty brings. Yeah. It depends on how they frame it, of course. Right. Exactly. What it is, how they frame it, how they deal with it. I think it has to do with like the outcome of it. So like when you talk about change, which I know a little something about, yeah, um, you might, you might know just a thing or two. Just yeah. a tad. Yeah. Um, if you have like a positive experience with change, you're definitely going to be less likely to balk at it. So mm-hmm. for sure. Um, if you can, yeah, open yourself up to like sort of having these novel experiences, these changes in how you think, right. Um, it can only serve you well. And, um, you know, something that I was thinking about when I uncovered this this week or when it was like brought to my attention this week Mm. uh, that this thing exists is that I was thinking about how psychological richness can protect against boredom and Mm -hmm. that might seem like small potatoes when compared with you know you positing that it might be able to help us like with tragedies and mitigating change but there is a very strong link between boredom and depression and yeah there absolutely is yeah those two things absolutely feed each other you know, we can, we can talk about that for a whole other episode if we want at some point. Probably a whole month. Pete. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, maybe. All right. Well, let's get back on track here. So far, we've been talking about how we can do things to help ourselves be happier. And I just want to remind everyone that there are a plethora of studies that posit that the secret to happiness may actually lie in doing things to make other people happy rather than ourselves. Yeah, you're not exaggerating when you say a plethora. There is a veritable smorgasbord of research that has been done that suggests that doing things for others enhances our well-being for sure. Yeah, and and to be clear, a lot of this research is testing whether participants would report a greater boost in well-being after trying to make another person happy versus trying to make themselves happy. Yes, and and this, Pete, is specifically for you, my friend. The reason that we increase our happiness levels by doing for others even, by the way, if it is a stranger, mm. is believed that it is because of our most basic psychological need for relatedness. Wait, are you saying, <laughs> are you saying that when we experience a connection to others, we get happier? I know. It's not like you haven't been saying this since episode one of season one. I'm just, I'm honestly just delighted to see that I was on the right track. 
And I want to celebrate your call back to our first episode. That was great. Well, that was an easy one to recall. I'd be like, <laughs> season one, episode one. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Because he worked so diligently on it. Yeah. Yes. The, the one the one that Pete just wouldn't shut up about. Personal connection. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so speaking of callbacks, I'm going to potentially throw something new at you about Ooh. what you've been saying since we started this podcast going on now, like looking at the calendar. Yeah. Like a year at this point. A year and change. Yeah. And when we started, mm-hmm. we're not sure. And I'm, I'm all ears. I love new stuff. I love the callbacks. Love the new stuff too. Let's do it. Okay. So you'll be happy about what it has to say. Plus it's a good callback. So it's like a win-win for me. Yeah. Yeah. So, sure. Flexing all the muscles. Yes. There you go. Right. So let me preface what I'm about to say by saying as our resident introvert, I fully believe that people in general have a need for relatedness, for connection. I just have to say that I don't rely on it quite so heavily as some of my extroverted brethren. So some of this seems like to me, but I, I get it. Let's put it that way. And extroverts generally get energized by spending time with people, whereas introverts get plussed up by, by not spending time with people, you know, it, yes. to boil it down to the basics, just in a nutshell. Yes, exactly. Like after we record, Pete will be like, woohoo, and like have all this energy. And I'm like, I am going to go lie under my covers, right? You know, like I'm depleted. That's truly, that's, that's like how this goes. If that's what you think I do after we record, then I don't think you know me as well as I thought you did. I think (laughs) you get pretty happy after we record. I'm going to say that, yes, this is true. I think you're all smiles for a while, but. I am. That's the fact. Yes, that's true. All right. So there was research done at the University of California at Riverside, and they asked people to behave either extroverted or introverted for one week. It, mm-hmm. it didn't, it was irrelevant whether they were actually extroverted or introverted. They were, they were assigned to act a certain way. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they found that those who purposefully acted extroverted, which here you go. I hate saying it almost decades of research has shown is the, one of the most common characteristics of happy people. Those folks who acted extroverted saw a significant increase in well-being. Mm, and, and was the, was the inverse true? Was did acting introverted lead to a decrease in well-being? It did. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, one plausible explanation for why this works is that these pro-social behaviors like leaning in can sort of induce a cognitive dissonance. It's this, I feel unhappy, but yet I'm acting happy. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Curious emoji face, right? <laughs> well, Stroking then, the chin, right. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yes, exactly. One eye sort of winky. Yes, right. So people try to resolve it subconsciously by like feeling happier. They can't have the disconnect. So they just, they, their happiness meter pluses uh-huh. up. So this is me, of course. I'm like, oh, I got to do more research on this. This can be true. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> please, please, please. Yeah. So turns out that there's a psychologist at the University of Hertfordshire in the United Kingdom where only words like Hertfordshire come from. Right, exactly. Yes. And there's a man there goes by the name of Dr. Wiseman, which is actually his name, but it just was too apropos not to call it out. Yeah, no, of course. He, he refers to this as the quote unquote, as if principle. So if you want to feel a certain way, you act as if you already do, and your brain will grant you that feeling at least for a little while. I've, in my experience, we have a less academic name for this. Okay. We call it fake it till you make it. All right. Well, same, same. Yes, exactly. Apparently what we can do is ask ourselves what 
happy people in our life situations would do to make things better for themselves and others. So it's sort of like this imagining a what if, if you will, like future forward sort right, of thing. Which is, which is just a hair removed from Dr. Wiseman's as if principle. Yes. And if we don't know what happy people would do in our similar life circumstances, well, then we can actually source people for their ideas. We could try them on for size. We can go to somebody who's happy, who's extroverted and say, hey, if you were in my sitch, you know, you got some recommendations for me and we can commit to doing those things, even if we're really not feeling it. Sure. So, so you can essentially deliberately trick yourself into being happy. It is the craziest damn thing. Yes, you're actually creating the conditions by which you can produce your own happiness naturally. And in turn, interestingly, give the gift of happiness to others. And there we go. We've come full circle because now we're helping out others with their happiness, which makes us happy. It's fascinating, right? It is. Yeah, it's a, like a positive feedback loop. I haven't tried it yet. I'm waiting for like... <laughs> it's like, it's almost like a uh, like an inverse Munchausen's. Oh, that's interesting. The inverse Munchausen. By the way, every time I hear Munchausen, my initial mind goes to those little donuts. No, no, not a box of 20. No, no, this is bad stuff. But this has a name, not the donut thing. Okay. Um, Uh, But this is referred to as practicing good happiness hygiene, just like you would do like flossing of your teeth, right? mm -hmm. What I'm saying is here is that you don't want to treat these ideas as occasional hacks. You are treating them as like, systematic habits. You're continuously aligning your actions with your, where you want to be on the happiness scale, if you will. And I don't want to get too far off base, but how does pretending to be happy to essentially trick ourselves into being happy, Mm -hmm. how does that coincide with experiencing all our emotions? Oh, interesting. Well, I guess you could say that we're probably experiencing some of those other ones on the dial already. Maybe that's just where we're not plussed up. Remember, mm-hmm. we want to experience a varying array of them. Right. Yeah, that's correct. As long right. as you're not deficient in a lot of the other ones and yeah. you're only sort of depleted in that one category, you could do this to plus yourself up. I'm just guessing. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, but but to your point, you do want to experience all of them because yeah. that's yeah, that's long lasting happiness. And what you said about about mimicking extroverted behavior, there's a there's a large body of research that has demonstrated that that socializing with peers is a surefire way to boost your mood, even if you are introverted or have high levels of social anxiety. I know, isn't that crazy? As somebody who teeters <laughs> on what you're just explaining there, yeah. Um, I, I've definitely had that bump in my mood while being around others, but I got to tell you there, there's a tipping point for people like me where it just starts depleting my metaphorical battery life. And, and then it goes South fast, right? Yeah. So there's, there's probably a sweet spot. I, I would imagine someone's looked into this. Yeah. I, and I haven't run across research like that to date, but I'm going to guess that someone has studied that. And if they haven't, well, maybe you have your next research topic, right? I'm like, Oh, guess what? Next little rabbit hole I'm going to go down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so to go, just to tie the bow on this little topic here, I wanted mm-hmm. to add that, um, you know, some, somebody who has a high level of extroversion, you know, is likely to have a wide social network, is more prone to initiate contact with other people, to uh-huh. accept invites to social events, spend sure. leisure time socializing. All of those things, right, can lead to situations that satisfy our innate need for relatedness. Right. So it's 
it's really no wonder why the advice work coming out of the research was to mimic an extrovert. Right. We should make buttons like mimic an extrovert. Or we should right. call like June 27th is mimic an extrovert day. Oh God, that would be, be good a lot. Or bad. I'm that'd waiting for you. Yeah. It'd be a lot. So as we wrap up this episode and our month long foray into happiness, I wanted to share one last thing that I know that you and I have both discovered this month. And that is the key to happiness is don't seek out happiness specifically. And Melissa couldn't be more right there, folks. Research backs us up. There's a study that I came across that says that seeking happiness could actually make you depressed. It's like looking directly at the sun, right? Nobody does that. But if I break down that sunlight into its colors, into the, you know, into the spectrum and look at the rainbow, I can enjoy that. I can, you know, that's pleasurable. Yes. If we break down happiness into its ingredients and seek them instead, we will be successful. That's right. And, and to go back to the definition that, that we referenced earlier from, uh, from Ben Shahar, focus on the subcomponents of happiness, the whole being and all of its separate ingredients. As you said, spiritual, physical, intellectual, relational, emotional, work on, on developing all of them mm-hmm. individually. And your overall whole being is going to be happy. Absolutely. You want to send us out, Pete? Of course, I I would love to. Melissa and I would love to continue this discussion with you all on social media. Where does happiness reside for you? Do you think you're more hedonic or eudaimonic? What do you have planned to strike a balance between the two? And and what are you doing to become psychologically rich? I Mm. want to know. Yeah. Um, And as a reminder... Uh, I have this little quote sitting here and I would be remiss if I did not share it. It says, for many of us, the bigger challenge isn't knowing what actions would make us happier, but actually doing those things. So make sure you're creating actionable items that you can actually put into effect starting now and let us know how that goes for you. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at ThinkSigPod and on Facebook and LinkedIn by searching for Think Significantly. And if you enjoyed our conversation, please invite your curious friends to listen and watch our socials in June for supplemental material to continue your discussions on happiness with your friends, your family, your coworkers, basically anyone you can back up into a corner (laughs) to have a conversation about this topic. And then rejoin us in July for our very next theme, which we're already hard at work on. Our working title so far, I'll just give them this. If you listen, uh, that's how they get you. So um, that's our working <laughs> title so far. So there's lots of things that fall under that. And um, right. it's, I, it's just ways to make your life better. Well, and until then, until we see you in July, we encourage everyone to think significantly about the world around you. Na, 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 na.